Church, will you pray with me? Almighty God, we thank you that you are our good shepherd who delights to hear our needs. Father, as a church this morning, we, we pray that you would be working in our church. As we just prayed for Carl, we pray now for ourselves as a congregation. Father, we pray that we would be a church that is humble and eager to be taught and eager to be led by the shepherds you've given us. Father, may we be sheep that admit that we need spiritual leadership and accountability. May you prepare us now, knowing that the times that we most need accountability are the times that we want it the least. Father, we pray that we can come under Carl's leadership as one of the elders in the plurality that you've given us. Father, we pray for the new members of our church this morning that have covenanted with us as of last Sunday night. Father, we pray for Willie Delgado and Joseline Delgado. We thank you for their embrace of the gospel and for their earnest support of the Spanish ministry. We pray that they would be used in our church to make disciples. Father, we pray that they would consider it a normal thing to do just that, to help others grow in Christ. Would you grow them in our midst? Father, we pray also as a church this morning for our Spanish ministry. We thank you for the overwhelming grace that we see in this ministry. We thank you for how the gospel is going out each week. Father, would you guide our pastors? Would you guide David and Francis? And would you guide this area of our church as we look to the future? Father, we pray that this ministry would grow, be well supported, that we could see more reached here in Palm Beach County. Father, we're, we're jealous for your glory, not, not only in this county, but beyond. Uh, this morning, we pray for Providence Road Church in Miami, Florida. We thank you for the faithfulness of that church, that faithful body that loves you and is founded upon your word. Father, as Pastor Jesse Crowley preaches this morning from Romans chapter 16, would you guide his words? Would their church be built up in Christ today? Would you add to their number and deepen their faith? Father, we also pray for your help here this morning. Thank you, God, for your word. Father, I thank you that your word is indeed a gold mine that is ours for the taking, that there is rich gold to be discovered and searched out in your word. I thank you that you've designed it, that it deserves being searched out, that it's, it's worth the pursuit of understanding what your word is saying. So we ask that you would guide us in that this morning. May we see clearly into your word. We pray all this for the glory and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Michael Burry saw the future clearly. The year was 2005. Burry was an investor and a researcher, and he began to focus his attention on the subprime lending market. By scrutinizing the structure of mortgage bonds, he rightly predicted that there was a real estate bubble that was on the verge of collapsing and that subprime mortgages across the country 
would soon drastically lose their value. Now, to us, this is just nothing new. It's, it's recent history we know about. We watched the, the real estate bubble come crashing down in 2008. Uh, but for Michael Burry, years before, no one saw what he saw. No one was seeing what he was seeing. Everyone said that mortgages were a rock-solid, stable investment. And so what did he do? Well, he spent his money and his investors' money radically. Foreseeing the impending devaluation in the market, he began taking out insurance against the mortgages and the bond, mortgage bonds so that if they failed, he would be able to cash out. You don't have to be uh, in finance just to understand this. It's a simple idea. It's called shorting the market. It's to spend in such a way that you expect the value to fail and you benefit when it does. Well, it worked. Burry's foresight became legendary. When the housing market crashed overnight, while stocks all around him were just losing value, his fund made $700 million for his investors and $100 million for him personally. What a shrewd move. He saw the future clearly. He saw the inevitable depreciation of the assets, and he acted quickly. I think we could learn something from him. This is a similar lesson to the somewhat strange parable that we have in front of us this morning in the book of Luke. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. It'll help you if you just are able to, to follow along as I'm explaining this passage, to just glance down and see for yourself that what I'm saying in this passage is, is actually what's written. Uh, the emphasis of this section of Luke is, is about our money and our resources. In particular, Jesus is teaching us how to be good stewards. Now, a steward is someone who doesn't own the resources in their possession, but manages it for another. Here's the basic idea. Your money isn't yours. You are a steward of that money. You're to use it for your master's good, for your master's glory. You can see this basic idea if you just kind of look down to verse 12 there. We read, and if you had not been faithful in that which is another's, we will give you that which is your own. The idea is that we have right now uh, what is another's. It is, we are in possession of what belongs to God, what he's given us. Well, friends, I want to convince you this morning to be a faithful steward. And to do that, we're, we're going to see from this text four things. We're going to see the significance of our stewardship, the urgency of our stewardship, the worship of our stewardship, and the motivation of our stewardship. Uh, let's begin together thinking, number one, about the significance of our stewardship. That is, why is it important how we steward God's money? You, you know, you might be tempted to think that you're not Michael Berry. You don't have $100 million just sitting off in a hedge fund somewhere. Uh, maybe you say, well, if I did, well, well, then I'd be more careful with what I have. Well, this isn't the way that Jesus thinks in this passage. I think we'll be helped, by the way, if we just glance down and actually start in the middle of the passage to, to get where Jesus is heading. And here we see the significance of our stewardship. Look at verses 10 through 12. See what Jesus says there. He says, One who is faithful in a very little 
is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Jesus isn't afraid to emphasize the smallness of things. In fact, we've seen this before several times throughout the book of Luke. He's not, he's not afraid of small things and small beginnings. Notice there, here in these verses I just read, that there's three pairs of comparisons. We might have little or we might have much. We might have unrighteous wealth, which I think is just a term for worldly wealth, or we might have true riches one day. We might have something belonging to someone else, what we steward for God, or we might be given our own riches. We will indeed be given an inheritance. Jesus is concerned with each is that you are trustworthy. Do you see that word there in the text? Several times repeated, faithful, faithful. You see, it's not the size of what you have that he's now emphasizing. It's how you use what you do have that he's focused on. That's what's significant. Your faithfulness with what you have. Think about how immediately relevant this makes this whole conversation. Uh, you could be the richest man in the world sitting in this room, or you could be us, you, with what little you have. And still, your faithfulness matters a great deal to God. In fact, this is what we'll see in just a few chapters uh, here in the book of Luke. Jesus is going to highlight a woman who gives a small copper coin and says that she is more faithful than these, these rich Pharisees that are giving these great and luxurious gifts. As stewards, we should be faithful. God is the one here in, in verse 11 that you see there that is looking to entrust to us true riches. God is the one in verse 12 whose resources we're to be faithful with. The idea is that now in this world we have little. One day we'll have much. Now in this world we have uh, worldly wealth. One day we'll have eternal riches. Now we're stewards of God's resources. One day Christians will receive an eternal inheritance. This is the significance of our stewardship. You know, you might think that one day you'll give more and more generously uh, to help Christ's church grow or to do good things. Uh, once you start getting more, well, th then you'll begin to give more. Well, this passage says don't think that way. If you're not a sacrificial giver now, making sacrificial choices for the kingdom now with whatever little you have, well, then you won't later. When, when you have more, you'll just have more temptations to spend it on yourself. You have to understand now that it's his, that your, your money here is just a, a preview of how you will use your money later on. This is the significance of our stewardship. We also see, though, in this passage, number two, the urgency of our stewardship. Here, I want to go back to the story. Back in verses 1 through 9, uh, we see this strange parable of this dishonest manager. Let me just walk you through the story and help us understand it together. Jesus first has 
the picture, the disciples there in verse 1 picture a rich man. Now, this rich man clearly has a lot of assets. He's a manager, and this, uh, this he has a manager, and this manager, or steward, had been uh, tasked with overseeing the rich man's estate. But the rich man finds out that this estate manager that he had working for him had not been caring well for his wealth. He had been wasting the man's possessions. So the rich man, he, he calls in the manager, and he, and he fires him. He'll need to find a new job. He'll need to transition out of his current job. Now, at this point, after being told that he will be fired, the manager stops and reflects to himself. Do you see that there in verse 3? He asks himself, what, what should I do? How will, how will he take care of himself? He reasons he's, he's not strong enough for, for manual labor. Uh, he refuses to become a beggar. No, he needs to think about what's coming because he's just been fired. And then, in verse 4, he says, I've got it. I've got an idea for how I'll survive getting fired. Look at verse 4. It says, I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Here's the idea. Uh, this manager knew his time was limited and that he had to use what was at his disposal carefully. He had one chance to make use of the resources that he had. And so he calls in those who owed his master money. One by one, it seems to be separately, so they wouldn't hear from one another, he discreetly works out with them details for finding out how much each of these owe, and then he forgives really large portions of the loans. So you see there in verse 6, uh, one man owes a hundred measures of oil. That's 875 gallons of oil. He's clearly some merchant of some type. Well, the master makes him pay back only a portion of it to the, to the master. Uh, the, verse 7, you'll see another man owes a thousand bushels of wheat. Again, the, the manager, he just strikes down the debt, and he cuts a deal. He, he forgives just a, a large portion of what this man owes his master. Now, this is just a genius move by this man. But he had to act quickly. Notice uh, that important word there in verse 6. He says, sit down quickly and, and write 50. You see, this man who's managing this estate, he sees his future clearly, and he knows that this is the only chance he's got. He knows that the money that's, that he's in charge of at this point isn't his for the long term, but he's in charge of it for just a short amount of time. And so while his master's money is still in his possession, he prepares to use it for the future. By cutting deals with these debtors, they would, they would not only be grateful to his master because they're, they're getting off so well, but they'd be thankful to this estate manager. They'd never forget this guy who, who cut these deals for him. So when he's fired, surely they will welcome him into their homes. Then, in verse 8, we read, the master finds out. Now, he's not ignorant 
He, he understands this man is dishonest. Uh, so the master doesn't commend the estate manager for his, for his honesty or for his great morals. No, that's not what's being highlighted here. But you can always feel that the master taking a step back, maybe kind of chuckling to himself when he finds out what happened. He's astounded. What a clever guy this man is. How, how genius this man is to, to work the situation the way he did. He praises the estate manager under him because the manager has been shrewd. That is, he's been clever about his own future. He's been wise about what is coming down his path. Now, admittedly, I often find Christians struggle sometimes with this passage. Uh, isn't this man dishonest? Why is Jesus holding him up as an example? Isn't he doing a, a bad thing here? He's cheating his master. Well, of course. Absolutely he is. Jesus clearly admits that in verse 8, openly calling him a dishonest manager. So the point isn't that we're to learn morality from this man. That, that's what I think makes this such a wonderful parable, so helpful to us. You see, by choosing a main character who is so clearly flawed, Jesus is able to just take the lens of the camera and is able to focus in not on the man's good morals, but on the man's quick wisdom, his shrewdness in, in dealing with this, this fleeting opportunity. That's what this man did so well. Well, church, we should ask ourselves, what is the fleeting opportunity that we're to learn about? What are we seeking to be taught from this passage? Look at the second half of verse 8. Jesus concludes, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generations than the sons of light. Now, this is meant to be a bit stinging, I think, for us in the church. Uh, I've heard it said that Christians can be as innocent as serpents and as wise as doves. Well, Jesus is saying a bit of that. He's saying, look around the world. Look at how well the world is doing at being shrewd and clever uh, with their time in light of the moment that they're in. They don't even have a short timeline in front of them. And yet, look at all the energy and the, the efficiency and the creativity. Look at how, how phenomenally businessmen use their, their efforts and their work. This world understands time is fleeting and opportunities are ending. But Jesus says, here's the thing. They're in the dark regarding eternity. And you're in the light. You're sons of light. You, you can see a longer horizon. And, and you actually know just how limited time really is. So if this dishonest manager could spend quickly to take his opportunity, then why can't you, as honest managers, honest stewards, spend quickly to take your opportunity. What's the opportunity we should be thinking about? Well, in short, Jesus is going to say it's to prepare for your eternal home. That's the point of the next verse in verse 9. If, if 
this dishonest manager knew he, didn't, he needed to think about his, his earthly home, his future earthly home, after he was fired, Jesus is saying, you as honest stewards, you should think about your future home in the coming world. That's what he's getting at. Look at verse 9. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Jesus wants us to be shrewd with an eternal mindset. Now, uh, I'm honestly not sure what this idiomatic phrase, make friends for yourself, is referring to. It, it could be an expression for, uh, to be friends of, with God. Uh, perhaps he's referring idiomatically to God there. It, clearly, we know Scripture teaches us God is the one that most matters in receiving us into heaven. Or I think likely it could be a reference to helping others with the gospel, helping others in need. Like, we'll, we'll actually see this later in chapter 16 with the parable of Lazarus. Luke has this ongoing theme where he equates loving God with loving others, the poor and those less fortunate than ourselves. We show our love for God. We show that we've been changed by God's love by the way we love others with what we have. Regardless, the, the central thrust here is to, to use your temporary wealth for eternal relationships. That's what Jesus is saying here. Leverage your money like it's fleeting. Leverage your money like eternity is just a breath away. Understand the, the urgency of the moment that you're in and the urgency of, of your current stewardship. It's about to be over. Understand your stewardship is ending. So act now while you can act. Friends, your worldly wealth, your unrighteous wealth, as Jesus calls it here, is about to disappear. Did you notice there in verse 9, Jesus says, it will fail. He doesn't say, if it fails. He says, when it fails. I wonder, do you actually believe this? You know, I, I was, began the sermon talking about the, the housing market crash. Uh, during that bubble, the Lehman Brothers Holdings was a bank at the center of the housing crisis. And you'll remember that shortly before 1 a.m. on September 15th, the Lehman Brothers just announced bankruptcy. They folded with $639 billion of debt. Now, for those of you that are bad at math, it's a big bad number. It's bad. It's too much debt. You shouldn't have that much debt. Well, they folded. They announced bankruptcy. Worthless. You could consider your wealth this way, Christians, here on this earth. Imagine that all your earthly wealth is bound up in stock options of the Lehman Brothers. And it's September 14th the day before. That's where your wealth is. It's a little bit of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, your money is about to fail you. You don't believe it. It seems so precious now, but it will fail. Your stock, oh, it's about to be worthless. Your earthly wealth is on the verge of a giant market crash. 
but it's not too late to use it shrewdly before it fails. The shrewdness here that, that Jesus is commending this man isn't, it's not so much being overly scrupulous as much as it is acting in light of eternity. I think that's what he has in mind with the shrewdness of this man. He's acting in light of what's about to happen. He's about to be fired. Let me act now. Friends, there's urgency here. Are you shrewd for eternity with what you have? How could you be more shrewd? How could you be more wise in light of this little moment of time that you get to live in? That could end at any moment. And all your wealth will be worthless. And what you do with that wealth could be eternal. Well, let me combine these two points, the significance of your stewardship, the urgency of your stewardship, and let me try to stir your thinking a little bit. You use your money shrewdly, application, when maybe you cut back on eating out in Starbucks budget, not wrong things to do, and maybe set aside that money to help Joe and Janie Martinez in Peru as they're still fundraising, trying to share the gospel with Peruvians who have never heard of Jesus Christ. Just an idea. Or maybe you give to help a local agency that, that cares for poor in our community. You use your money shrewdly when you maybe create a personal fund for hospitality with your family. I know a family that did this. They set aside money regularly so they'd be ready to be hospitable to others. They intentionally then pursued their neighbors. They had already committed to it. They had the fund right there. Or they took a fund and intentionally pursued new visitors for lunch after church. No excuse. They'd already planned for it. Or, or perhaps you use your, your time and your resources shrewdly so that you even get less money. Uh, I think of students or young families, even retirees. You can use your resources shrewdly when you consider giving up a year of your life or two years of your life, or more, to go serve on a church planning team where the gospel is not yet being preached. Choices like that show that you know that you only have a few short years, and then eternity, it's here. Church members, you use your money shrewdly for eternal relationships when you delay that upgrade to your house. Nothing wrong with upgrades to your house or you delay buying a, a slightly updated car so that you can give more aggressively and generously to your local church because you see that the gospel work is happening there and you see that biblical truth is being preached there and you want it to expand. You say, this needs to expand. The local church is the best investment you could ever make. I, I don't know what it looks like for you. I want you to catch the principle of it. Do you, do you feel the weight of the principle? The principle is that, that your money will fail. And you and I, we, we have a chance to be shrewd now, in this life, right before it does, for eternal relationships. Significance of our stewardship, the urgency of our stewardship. Thirdly, the worship of our stewardship. You, you could wrongly think that all this talk about good stewardship is really just a practical matter of do's and don'ts. 
But next we see that, that Jesus considers this as a far more important issue. Jesus sees your use of money as an act of worship. Whether, whether right worship or wrong worship, you will worship with your money. You'll do it this week. You'll probably do it this, today. So listen carefully. Look at verse 13. He says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So just catch the illustration Jesus is trying to get us to picture here. Maybe you could just picture an ancient servant being hired out for labor, right? And imagine that that, that servant there, he's got different options in front of him for where he'll go work. The servant isn't sure which place is a better place to go work. Should he go here or should he go over here and work? For which, which master would be better? So you know what he decides to do? He just goes ahead and he signs up for both masters at the same time. He'll, he'll serve them both. How long will it be before this idea just backfires on such a servant? You know, one, one will say, go home this way. The other master will say, go home this way. One will say, work on this project today. Prioritize this today. The other master will say, no, no, no. Work on this project. Prioritize this. The result will be just foolishness. The servant would never be able to serve two masters. They, he wouldn't be able to do it effectively. This is what Jesus means when he says, no servant can serve two masters. You just can't do it. You can either serve money or you can serve God. One will take priority in your life this week. But Jesus considers not only that the servant can't actually do it, but he points out how this would internally just tear up the servant. Did you notice that in the text? He, he points out how the servant will be split. That he'll find he gives to one of the masters love and devotion, and to the other hate, and, and he will despise him. Friends, this is what happens with your heart, with, with my heart, and money. If your heart is divided, you will have to choose. Now, many of us will try to prove this wrong in our lives. We'll try to think of a way that we can figure out how to be devoted to God and, and still keep our love for money. Jesus says you can't. You just can't. J.C. Ryle says this about this verse. He says, thousands on every side are continually trying to do the thing which Christ pronounces impossible. They are endeavoring to be friends with the world and friends with God at the same time, and hence they live in a state of constant discomfort. They have too much religion to be happy in the world. They have too much of the world in their hearts to be happy in their religion. In short, they waste their time laboring to do that which cannot be done. They are striving to serve God and money. Why can't we love both? Why can't you love the both, even if you think you can try? Because our hearts make an idol out of money. Some of you look to money for control. Some of you look to money for security. Some of you look to money for comfort. 
Some of you look to money for escape. But all of these purposes are turning money into a false god. Did you notice that the language in this last verse is just filled with worship language? Jesus is calling us to give our love to something. He's calling us to give our devotion to something. Even there at the end of the verse, I think the the NIV translates it well. It says, you cannot serve both God and money, and it capitalizes the word money. I think the translation is right. Picks up on the fact that money here is being set up as an alternative God, an alternative idol, a false master that you could try to give your love and devotion to. But it will never satisfy. It's a horrible master to work for. This is a worship issue, brothers and sisters. One commentator notes this correctly. He says, this word to serve is a word for solemn covenantal service rendered to a king. You see, your money will either be a tool with every penny you spend to worship God, or your money will be an idol that becomes your God. Tim Keller says this. He says, if you live for money, you are a slave. If, however, God becomes the center of your life, that dethrones and demotes money. If your identity and security is in God, it can't control you through worry and desire. It is one or the other. You either serve God or you become open to the slavery of money. Oh, church, you must see that there is a worship battle happening in your heart. That's what keeps us from spending generously and acting shrewdly in light of this short moment we're in. If you don't think you don't partially serve money, if you think this isn't true of you, just ask yourself, how have you been doing at spending shrewdly on eternity? How would you have spent this last year's money differently if you had believed what the Bible says about the shortness of your life and the eternal length of eternity? I know these are hard questions to answer. I think these would be great questions, by the way, just church for you to talk through with a friend or another church member. I I do know that that's a radical thing to say in our culture. Uh, Just a quick sidebar here. My family and I, we lived in the Middle East for uh, 11 and a half years, and we found that personal and private issues often just felt out of whack and flipped. Uh, so it was common, just an example, for me to, uh, to know a friend for years and be really close with him, and yet not know his wife at all, to never greet his wife, shake her hand, or even at times not even know her name, because that was a private matter. It was a bit strange to me. It seemed a little bit unnecessarily protective. Well, you know what was unnecessarily protective to my friends in the Middle East? was my American view of money. I mean, I I kid you not, we'd be five minutes into a conversation with a new friend on the side of the street, and they'd just ask me how much I paid for my apartment, what my salary was, how much I was paying an employee that I just hired. They just assumed that I'd be happy to share some of these things. Now, I'm not saying we need to do that, but it didn't make me stop and consider maybe personal finances is a bit 
too sacred in our culture? What if, what if you had relationships in a local church where you could talk about even money, where you could even talk about the risk of making money your idol and how you're doing at, at that worship battle that's just raging in all of our lives? What if you had a few friends that you could open that door up with and consider how well are you doing at spending your money shrewdly for eternal purposes and worshiping God as you do? Well, we should conclude. Uh, in my conclusion, let me just briefly reflect on, fourthly, the motivation of our stewardship. I, I began this sermon talking about Michael Burry, that shrewd investor that made it big in the, the housing bubble collapse. Now, interestingly, in the middle of Michael's story, back in 2006 or 2007, his plan didn't seem all that shrewd to many of his investors. Before the housing market crashed and made him rich, he actually suffered an investor revolt. Everyone wanted to pull out of this idea that he had of, of betting against the mortgage bond market. No one believed him. None of his investors uh, were, were seeing the results. No one could see the future clearly. He had told them they might just need to be patient, but it, no one saw what he saw. Others backed away. They just couldn't trust him. And they couldn't see clearly that this man was about to make hundreds of millions of dollars by the shrewd bet that he was making. Now, here's my question. What if they had seen it coming? Would, would they have bet like he did on the market's failure, the rapid depreciation that's coming? Of, of course they would. It would be the obvious thing to do. Friends, as your pastor, I don't want you to miss out on future true riches. I don't want you to miss this. And as I look back over this passage, I see here the argument of this passage. Let me show you the motivation that's at play. It's this idea of being able to look forward and see what's coming. The more I study Jesus' approach time and time again to wealth, the more I see consistently his argument is this faith in future grace. It's this faith that we have now in a future wealth. We see what's coming. We see and we actually believe it's true. And so we're generous. We see this here with the steward. That's what happened, right? He, he saw what was coming. He's getting fired. So he says, I, I got to act now. Or we see it with the call to, to faithfulness down there in verse 10. We, we, we realize what we do now matters for the long haul. Or we saw this back earlier, a couple chapters ago, with the rich man in the barns. Do you remember? He couldn't see that his life was about to end, so he misspent his money. Or we see it uh, with later in this chapter with the rich man who couldn't see that he was about to be separated because his money was his stumbling block. Or we see it earlier in chapter 12 with Jesus when he says, provide yourself with money bags that don't grow old with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, well, where thief, no thief approaches and where moth does not destroy. The point is, 
when we see clearly what's coming, we have the motivation, the ability to obey in light of that future grace. Or let me put it another way. Your generosity problem is really a faith problem. What you need is to believe that it's actually all true and just connect that to your wallet. So friends, what if today you saw the return of Jesus Christ with the eyes of faith? Oh friends, he is coming back. He is coming back. Do you believe that? You can say amen. He is coming back. Well, what if you saw What if you saw with the eyes of the faith that he actually is coming back and your market is going to crash? What if you, what if you saw a glimpse of the inheritance that's waiting for you the moment he comes back? What, what if you saw what was laid up in the riches of Jesus Christ in eternity future? Well, how would you live? How you, what kind of generosity would spring forth? Friends, I argue to you that even a dishonest manager, one that we do not want to emulate, was able to live in light of the imminent future. Jesus' persuasion method to move our hearts is to look ahead. Look ahead and believe. And that's, that's the fuel that cranks the engines of our heart into generosity. Won't you believe today? May God make us faithful stewards as we prepare for heaven. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray that you would give us the faith to believe what we say we believe. Father, I pray that you would make us a generous people. Father, I pray that you'd make us a church community that thinks together about what generosity looks like, each individually. Father, I pray for wisdom with how we give, how we use what resources you've entrusted to us. Father, I pray that we would worship Jesus Christ with every resource that we have, believing that he is returning. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.